It's good to see you this morning. I'll invite you to open with me in your Bibles as we continue our study of John's Gospel. But would you please begin by going not to John, but to Ephesians chapter 3. If you've already turned to John 12, you can keep your finger there and we'll be coming back in just a moment. I'm going to start by reading just a few verses out of Ephesians 3 because... This is one of the central places where we hear something that is described in many places in the New Testament called the mystery of Christ. You need to know as we begin this morning, when the Bible talks about and describes the mystery of Christ, it's not talking about something that is still now a mystery to us. It's not the point that it's making. Instead, the mystery of Christ is a reference to something significant foundational even, truth that was veiled in the Old Testament and has been revealed to us in Christ. So the New Testament speaks of this mystery of Christ 31 times, 26 of them by the hand of the Apostle Paul. If you're in Ephesians 3, you don't have to look back at this, but Ephesians 1 spoke about this in verse 10 when it talked about the plan of God for the fullness of time like this, that his plan was, quote, to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This has been God's plan, to unite all things in his son. It's a reference to what we mean by the mystery of Christ, but now he explains it explicitly in chapter 3. I'll start reading in verse 4. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, when you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And you can stop there. What we're finding is that this mystery of Christ is standing really for nothing less than the very plans of God for salvation of the world through his Son. I mean, this mystery of Christ is the explanation for how anyone is being saved. And then on top of that, how anyone is being saved, an explanation for how God has chosen to use the Jewish people to be the vessel through which he would save men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation. Now, why are we talking about this this morning? We're in John's gospel in this study. John's gospel doesn't even mention the word mystery, nor do any of the four gospels. So why are we talking about this? Well, we're starting this way because Paul's point there in what we've just read out of Ephesians 3 is that this mystery was revealed to us where? It was revealed to us in Christ. And if we're walking, as we are, if we're walking through an account of the life and ministry of Christ, we would not be surprised, would we, to find that very mystery being borne out as we watch and listen to our Lord going through his ministry. Even if the word mystery is not used to describe what we're seeing, we would expect this reality of how God is working in his Son to save, we'd expect it to be on display. And we begin this morning like this because, in fact, that's exactly what is going to be put on display 
in our text this morning. And as we're seeing it, what I want to make the case for to you is that this is, in fact, an intentional demonstration of just this reality on the part of the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle John. He is teaching us about how God is bringing salvation to the world through his Son. So if you haven't already, you can come back now to our text. We'll be looking this morning at John chapter 12, verses 9 to 23. And we're going to look at this under two headings this morning. The first is that in John 12, the mystery of Christ is displayed in a particular way by two crowds. See that in verses 9 to 11 and in verses 16 to 20. Secondly, then this morning, we're going to watch as the triumphal entry, this is the key event of our text, the triumphal entry of Christ, which is, as we're going to see, a triumphant arrival of the mystery of Christ. We're going to watch that mystery of Christ be celebrated and misunderstood. It is what is being celebrated in Jerusalem on that day. However, as we hear them, we can tell it's being misunderstood at the same moment. That'll come especially in verses 12 to 15. So let's hear God's word together as I read aloud John 12, verses 9 to 23. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The first heading under which we try to approach our text has to do with what I, th I hope you noticed was a repeated word in, in what we read. It has to do with the presence of these crowds. 
And let's remember what we're expecting to see here. If indeed what we're seeing is the mystery of Christ playing out right in front of us, then what we would expect to find is that God here is bringing salvation by working saving faith in sinful humanity. And that this will not happen in a way that is limited to Jews only, but it will happen in a to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles manner, a phrase that we hear several times repeated in the New Testament. Now, the key, I think, to having an accurate mental picture of what's going on here is to both see the activity of the crowds in this text and especially to understand that there's more than one crowd involved in this scene. Maybe you noticed as we were reading how repetitive John is with this mention of these crowds. Verse 9, large crowd of the Jews. Verse 11, many of the Jews. Verse 12, the large crowd. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus. Verse 18, the crowd. Keeps emphasizing these groups going on. And the fact that there's a progression of events on display here really is only clear if we understand that there are two distinct crowds that he's talking about. So let's notice it here. One crowd that's playing a role here are the Jews that had gone to help Mary and Martha to mourn back in John eleven nineteen, Lazarus was dead, had not yet been risen from, been raised from the grave. They are mourning his death, and it said then a large crowd of Jews came from Jerusalem to help them to mourn. We read that back in chapter 11. And once Lazarus was raised from the dead, John 11:45 told us that many of the Jews who had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Now, what do you suppose they did in the days that followed that? I don't think it's hard to imagine, given that it was the greatest thing that they had ever experienced in their life. What they did is they talked about it. And they talked about it a lot. Would you have talked about it a lot if you had just witnessed what they witnessed on that day? And we know that they talked about it a lot because by verse 9 of our text, there's now a second crowd that exists that can be described and spoken of. It's the large crowd of the Jews who are described in verses 9 to 11. Now look there, listen to what we are told about this crowd. Starting in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Because... On account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, what are we hearing about this crowd here? Well, many things. It's large. It's the first thing. It's a crowd composed of Jews. Maybe some Jews who were native to Jerusalem, but certainly Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem for this celebration. We also hear about this crowd that they're coming with the intent to see Jesus and Lazarus, right? They learned that Jesus is there in Bethany, and they go to see him, but they also want to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, how did they know that? How did they know 
anything about this event? Well, they knew because the first group has been talking, has been telling people. And all of those in this group who have this interest are the result of all of this spreading of this news of what has taken place. Notice further what we read about that second crowd in verses 10 and 11. The event of their going to Bethany to check this out prompts the chief priest to add Lazarus to the hit list. I read someone who made a a very, I think, good observation when they they recalled Caiaphas' words of uh, maybe it's profitable for one man to die for the sake of the nation. Well, already now, what we are seeing is what we always see with unrepentant sin. It's growing. Now one man is not sufficient. Now two men have to die. This is what we see happen, isn't it? But it's this group going to Bethany that prompts them to add Lazarus onto the list. Why does it bring that result? Well, notice how the crowd is depicted. Verse 11, they made this plan to put Lazarus to death. It says, because on account of Lazarus, Many of the Jews were doing these two things. They were going away, and they were believing in Jesus. Now, they're saying this as a result of the crowd that's gone. So this is a description of what's happening in this crowd. Let's be sure we understand the complaint. What is it that the priests mean when they complain about people going away? Are they just referring to Jews leaving Jerusalem to travel in order to see Jesus? The word could mean that. But it has a more specific meaning as well. In many places, that particular verb of going away is used to refer to someone forsaking, going away in terms of allegiance, leaving in that way. So some other translations translate verse 11 like that. They'll say things like, because many of the Jews were deserting them the priests, or many of the Jews were going over to Jesus. See, they're trying to capture this idea behind going away. They are seeing defections from those who had submitted to their authority before all of this. And I mean, the mere fact of so many people leaving town to see him, when remember, they had been ordered to report Jesus if they knew where he was, right? So that he could be arrested. The mere fact of so many people leaving to go see him is evidence enough. They are dealing with a defection of allegiance. But it also tells us that the priests are upset because many of the Jews were, quote, believing in Jesus. Now, we brought this up in this past week's church newsletter that's emailed out. I hope you were able to see that. The point that was made there that's good for us to understand is that when John says this, he says it with, with a multi-word phrase that is a particular meaning. He seems to use this phrase to emphasize that he's describing true belief here, true faith in Christ. The Pharisees are discerning that Jesus is truly gaining followers as a result of what he did for Lazarus. And this phrase, believe into Jesus or believe in him, is going to come up many more times in this chapter, and we'll be talking about that more in the weeks to come. But when we, let's just step back then. When we have noticed these two crowds, the group that was there at Lazarus' resurrection, 
who have been spreading the word, and the crowd that was not there, but that has come into existence because of the testimony of the first group, when we hear that, then we can perceive them in verses 17 and 18. It's easy to miss because John just uses the words, the crowd, in both verses, and it can sound like he's just describing one crowd, but he's describing two. So look again at verse 17. If it was hard to see before, it'll be easy to see now. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, there's the first crowd, continued to bear witness. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, that's not the first group, that's the second group. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So up until verse 19, we have seen this. Some people see Jesus, believe in him, tell others about him. Many of those other Jews hear their report, investigate for themselves, and likewise come to believe in him. You see how this spreading is already beginning to happen? However, we have not yet seen the full display that was described to us when it comes to the mystery of Christ. Because who is in play so far? A bunch of Jews are in play. And this is where we begin to see the mystery of Christ come into center focus. For starters, it is, you could say, ironically alluded to by the Pharisees' own words. And I think very intentionally on the part of John and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now what point are they making? They're lamenting the sheer number of Jews that are defecting in this way, aren't they? And they phrase it with a hyperbole. Look, the world has gone after him. Obviously, in their minds, they're being dramatic, aren't they? They're using the word world to just reflect the large number of people. But John has been using the word world many times in his telling of the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And he's not been using it like that. What else does the word world bring to mind? As John has used it, he has consistently used it to refer to People everywhere without racial distinction who are lost and in rebellion against God. That's how he's been speaking of the word world. You think of John 3, 17. God sent his son so that the world might be saved through him. Making a distinction about lost people, but also making a distinction that goes well beyond the borders of the land of Israel. He sent his son so that the world might be saved through him. Now, these Pharisees are not thinking about that, of course, but John is. And if we've learned, if we've learned from our Bibles that Christ has come for this purpose, to do what Paul was describing in Ephesians 3, to do what he has said in John 10, 16, which was to bring in sheep from every tribe and nation to make them one flock, shepherded by him. 
If we've learned from Ephesians 2 that God's eternal plan was to bring Jew and Gentile together in Christ, those words come from Zechariah chapter 9. You've been there before this morning. Maybe it makes it easier to find. Try to find Zechariah 9 again, second to last book of the Old Testament. And in fact, we'll start with a few verses from the chapter right before that. You can tell what has been leading into chapter 9 when we read, starting in Zechariah 8, verse 20. So find chapter 8, verse 20. I'll read verses 20 to 23. This sets up what is going to be said in the next chapter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Can you hear what God is promising concerning the coming future salvation that he is going to bring? But do you hear how it concerns the nations and yet somehow it centers in Jerusalem? It's just like what Jesus has already told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Salvation is from the Jews. He wasn't ashamed to say that. This is the plan of God being unfolded. Now, the verse in chapter 9 of Zechariah that Jesus is going to deliberately fulfill by climbing onto that donkey, the one that John is going to reference is verse 9. So he's referencing Zechariah 9.9. But we need to see what else is being said here in this context. And we've talked about this before, but let me remind you, you need to realize that very often in the New Testament, when someone references a single verse in the Old Testament, this was their practice. Their intention is not just to remind us of that specific verse. Their intention is to bring to our mind that passage, that context, the context around that verse. We see it very clearly in the ways that the New Testament will quote one thing and then draw conclusions. Oftentimes, conclusions that didn't even directly stem from that verse, but they stemmed from the verse after it or the three verses above it. It's very clear that this is what they're doing. John is doing that. He intends to remind his readers of what we're told in Zechariah chapter 9. So look at what's going on leading up to the statement in verse 9 about the donkey. If you glance through verses 1 to 7, you're seeing words of God's judgment against the enemies of his people. You see that? You see a number of names of cities, cities like Tyre and Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ashdod. These are enemies of Israel in that time that bordered them and that have been plaguing them for a long time. And the point that's being made in those verses is that God is going to conquer. But his point is more specific than that. It's not just that he's going to conquer, but what we find in those verses is that God is going to conquer in two ways. One way is he will destroy. You hear a lot of that in verses 4 to 7. God is going to judge and bring to destruction. 
And in that way, he's going to conquer. But he's going to conquer in another way as well. And that is by transforming a remnant of those peoples. Conquering them by bringing them into his kingdom. So look at, for example, verse 7. It begins with a reference to pagan religious rituals. He says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. But not by wiping them out, but how? It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. You see the picture here that God intends that his people come to include those from among these foreign peoples. This is a part of how he is going to conquer, not only by destruction, but by salvation. Salvation that extends beyond the border of Israel. In verse 9, Israel's king is coming to them, mounted on a donkey. And what will he do according to verse 10? He will defeat his enemies, but do you see that it says, He will speak peace to the nations, and his rule will be from sea to sea. It's a picture of rule by this one whom God is sending to at last rescue and save. It's a picture of rule, no doubt, but not rule for Israel only. Rule for the world, which he says amounts to peace for the world. Now, the crowd in John 12 is not thinking in these global terms. They're in large part thinking of military defeat of their enemies, especially the Roman enemy. And they have long forgotten, it seems, based on how they have received this coming one, Jesus. They've long forgotten that God's intention was that his son, Israel, would be the means of rescue, the means of salvation to the nations, so that they would do exactly what the end of Zechariah chapter 8 said. They would come to Jerusalem and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This crowd does not have that in mind, but Jesus does. And so when the Greeks come to Jerusalem and ask to speak with Jesus, then he says, now my time has come to be glorified. Do you see how the mystery of Christ, hidden for ages past, but now revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit, do you see how we're watching that in display? They don't understand it as they see it, but we can look back and see God has always intended that it be this way. Jesus was not going to come and lay down his life for the nation of Israel only. He was going to come and work and teach and display God in such a way that what will happen? Here come the nations saying, 10, grabbing hold to the cloak of one Jew saying, bring us with you. We've heard that God is with you. We're going to watch this now as we march toward the cross in the weeks to come. But I would say to you this morning, just based on what we have seen so far here, there are multiple opportunities that God is giving us by what, how he has fed us this morning. One is significant, and it's simply to understand the significance of the triumphal entry a little bit better than we did before. 
It's a blessing to us that we would come to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed coming triumphant and in victory to Jerusalem. When they're celebrating his triumph and he is receiving that triumphant celebration, it's because he knows he is coming to succeed in what he has come to do. He was triumphant. He did enter victoriously to Jerusalem. But that triumph and that victory didn't look in any way like they were expecting it to look. Even the disciples continued to walk in fog and confusion about this. They could not, they would not understand until after the cross. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Notice what they're not understanding isn't simply what they're watching. They're not understanding the relationship between what they're seeing and what has been promised. But they did. They would. We'll see a dozen more times in what's coming in this study of John's gospel that this notion of glory and victory through death, because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Glory and victory through death. We'll see it. Many times that that is a concept they cannot grasp until they are looking back in the rearview mirror. For us, though, John is pointing out that even though they didn't grasp the nature of his victory and his work as king, even though they didn't comprehend it in that moment, Jesus was indeed coming in victory, coming in rule and rescue. So simply seeing the triumphal entry in the correct terms is one opportunity that God's word gives to us this morning. But there's another thing as well. And I think seeing this is just extremely helpful for us. It's been helpful for me. I hope it will be helpful for you this afternoon, this week. It's because what we've seen here reminds us that our God's ability to accomplish his purposes in us, I mean his effectiveness in accomplishing that purpose, is not dependent on the matter of our understanding what he's doing in that particular moment. Maybe a simpler way to say it is to say what mature saints who have walked with the Lord a long time know by experience. It'd be to say that so much of our insight So much of our right appreciation of Christ comes as we look back in the rearview mirror at the things that God has done in us and through us. Just as we'll see happening in the lives of the disciples. And the fact that we don't see it right then and only see it as we look back does not mean that God failed in that moment or that we had failed or that anything had gone wrong in that particular moment. This is how God works to bring himself glory. And that ought to protect us in a couple of different directions. Number one, it ought to guard us from discouragement and despair. To understand the patient way that God works. I used to be so, I remember this just as a tangible, long-term struggle of my own. I still experience it today, but it doesn't bother me like it used to. I remember, I used to be so frustrated with the constant experience I would have. I would, especially when it came to sitting and listening, 
I would come to church. I would sit and listen to an excellent sermon for an hour, get two minutes down the road, and have someone ask me what I thought or what they talked about, and complete blank. You ever, has that ever happened to you? I just, I, I, I don't know, I can't. That used to be extremely discouraging to me. But here's what started to happen. Time went on, and I started to notice that in the course of discussions and conversations, other contexts, that there would be stuff in my mind that helped things fall into place or that would come into play that I know came from those times of teaching. It was in there, in other words. And in fact, God was using it to shape who I was becoming, what he was doing in me. The fact that I wasn't conscious of it in the moment or couldn't articulate it in the moment was exactly zero complication for God. As he worked steadily to transform, renew, mature by the renewing of my mind. See, that's why we don't decide what is worthy or how to spend our time based on what we perceive as useful in the moment. Do you see how that speaks to that notion? It's so tempting for us to ask questions and make decisions like that. What am I getting out of it in the moment? This is why we don't make decisions based on those kinds of thoughts and feelings. But instead, we decide how to walk simply by trusting that when God directs us in how to live, when he tells us of the means that he has ordained to bless and grow his people, we simply trust that he actually knows what he plans to do better than we do. And that he is working always, even when I do not perceive or understand. So this protects us by guarding us against discouragement in those moments, making us patient and trusting in God's timing. The second direction that this can protect us from, and this has to do with realizing, I suppose, that our own mature thinking and appreciation of Christ comes as we reflect back on what God has done. Another way this protects us ought to be this. It ought to make us fundamentally a more humble people. I love the, the moments I've, in many contexts, worked with young children, um, and maybe you've heard these sorts of things as well. It, it's been, I've seen it many times, and it just makes me grin when you're talking to a seven-year-old, and they're telling you about something that happened to them or that they did back when they were four. And they say something like, back when I was little. <laughs> and you experienced that? I'm so much bigger and more mature now and I look back on who I was then, that was just silly. I love it, except for how revealing it is <laughs> about me. It's very revealing about me. We all do the very same thing, don't we? We look back at the versions of ourselves at an earlier stage in life and laugh about how much we thought we knew then. But we don't seem to connect the dots and realize that a future version of us will be looking back at the current one and laughing in the same way. We don't seem to take the second step. Why not try to live today, not in a false humility that denies what God has done and taught and shown, but with a proper humility that knows, 
I too am very much right now a work in progress. And I am not as far along as I think I am. So when those around me struggle or display immaturity or weakness, it's not that I'm going to hesitate to call sin, sin. We must call sin what it is and not excuse it. But these realizations will help me to see why it is right and why we are so called by Scripture to bear with one another, with patience. Why we are called not simply to, um, con- well, why we are called to cover so many wrongs over in our lives with love. Sometimes love confronts sin, and sometimes love covers over sin. Why are we told that in so many situations what we must do in love is to cover over sin, to bear with one another? We can do that better when we remember that God is continuing to do that with me right now. He didn't just used to do it with me. He's doing it now in ways that I don't even see. And guess what? Others around me are doing that with me right now. Every one of us in here, there are people in your life that are bearing with you in ways that you are totally oblivious to. In ways that we we pray, if it's God's plan, that he would show us later and that when we see them, we will cringe at them when we look in the rearview mirror. But I hope that we won't just cringe, we will also be be incredibly grateful for the patience that others dealt with us with in those times. We can thank God today that our Lord knows what victory is going to entail and what it looks like. And that he is mighty to save and that the victory is his. And so as we have said so many times Now, we walk in faith after him. We do not walk according to our own understanding. We yearn to kneel humbly before him, and we trust him to be the one who makes straight our paths. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are, we are grateful for the ways this morning that you have brought to our mind with a little bit more clarity than maybe we had before, a reminder of how patiently you are bearing with your children now. We're thankful for the reminder that you've given us of the certainty of your victory over this world your victory over the rebellion of this world. And we see ourselves in that, that we belonged to that rebellion until you came and conquered us, subdued us to yourself and brought us into your kingdom. Lord, we also, though, thank you for the reminder of the certainty of the fact that you're not only only moving forward in victory over the world and its rebellion, you are moving forward in victory over my own heart and the ways that I continue to fall short and to dishonor you. We thank you, Lord, that in in the revelation of the mystery of Christ, in his pouring out his holy blood to atone for and wash away my sins, 
that he has indeed paid the price of all the sins of all his people, past, present, and future. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to not grow complacent with sin or to take your work for granted. Help us to be faithful, to see and hate and call sin what it is. But Lord, as we do that and grow sharper in our perceptions of your ways, help us also, Lord, to exhibit to each other and to the world around us the grace and mercy that is found in Jesus Christ. It is only found in your Son. But oh, it is abundantly found there. Father, make us more faithful to bear your image in our renewed existence. And we thank you for the work you've done for us in Christ at the cross. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me invite you, would you